Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Charles Bromesco. And I'm Adam Woodward. And today we'll be talking about the octogenarian Oscar-winning dementia drama The Father, the anxiety-inducing waking nightmare that is Shiver Baby, and in Film Club we celebrate 25 years, oh yeah, since the release of the Coen Brothers' darkly comic crime classic Fargo. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, welcome listeners to another episode of Truth and Movies. I'm so thrilled today to be joined by Charles Brumesco and Adam Woodward, both first timers since the revamp. So what we like to do is to ask people to reintroduce themselves and where they sit within the Little White Lies empire. Adam, who are you and what do you do? Oh my goodness, what a question. Um, I am the digital editor at Little White Lies, so kind of oversee everything that that encompasses. Um, including this pod, which yeah, really, really pleased to see it kind of, you know, s- surviving the uh, the panny D and back. I think hopefully stronger than ever. Absolutely, and this is our first transatlantic episode of the podcast since we've relaunched. So, Charles, you are based in Brooklyn. That's right, New York City, baby. Uh, very <laughs> exciting to be on the podcast, coming to you from uh, the new world, as it were. <laughs> yes. What, what do you bring to the Little White Lies recipe? Um, So I believe my technical title is news editor. On a day-to-day basis, I'm keeping an eye on developments and trailers and other other fun sort of day-to-day business and giving those little write-ups on the site as well as, you know, uh, the occasional review and feature uh, all around critiquing. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, for the last couple of episodes, we've been asking you know, about cinema trips because in the UK, cinemas have just reopened um, after the mm. lockdown. How's stuff going in the States? Have you been going to drive-ins? Have you been going to the cinema yet? So regrettably, I mean, um, I did not have much in the way of car access during the whole pandemic, And so I uh, was mostly at home for about 14 months stretch. Uh, however, that recently changed. I went to go see... All of my firsts are coming along now. I saw my first proper film in the theater with people. I saw Spiral from the Book of Saw, uh, which was very sparsely attended, though I could not tell whether that was a function of the pandemic or or just a day at the movies. Um, I did my first uh, press screening in one of the big cinemas. They showed us in the Heights at one of the multiplexes, which was lovely. And I did my first tiny screening room uh, screening mm-hmm. as well. I saw Zola last week, which I was extremely taken with. And so it does feel... Uh, at least like I am back in the swing of things. I don't think we're back at full capacity yet, or at least I hope not. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, things are, uh, life is, is resuming in a very heartening way. Yeah, the whole smorgasbord of cinema screenings coming mm. back to you. 
we should say listeners the new issue of the thwart lies is still on shelves wherever you get your magazines you can also get it from lwlies.com a beautiful issue all about first cow which we discussed on the podcast a couple of weeks ago you know charles you're talking about the whole landscape of cinema reopening again and this week we're talking about two very locked in closed down films so we should probably kick off with that chat very contrary to the mood of reopening with our first film this week which is the father In The Father, Anthony Hopkins plays the eponymous role of a mischievous and highly independent man who, as he ages, refuses all assistance from his daughter Anne, played by Olivia Colman. Yet such help has become essential following Anne's decision to move to Paris with her partner. As Anne's father tries to make sense of his changing circumstances, he begins to doubt his loved ones, his own mind, and even the fabric of his reality. So this is one of those films that premiered early in the year in 2020, took a while to come out, picked up awards hype, picked up Oscars, and now it's finally making it out to UK cinemas. The big one, of course, being Anthony Hopkins winning an Oscar for Best Actor for this. Adam, do you think that is deserved? Yeah, it's interesting you talking about the journey the film's been on so far, and it, and it almost sounds strange to call this a sleeper hit, given the cast and, you know, the kind of, um, yeah, the awards attention it's received, but it does feel like it's been a bit of a slow burn. Um, and, and maybe understandably so. I think this this could be on paper um, a film that would maybe be targeted at an older audience and kind of going for that grey pound. But I think actually it is a really like universal film and the story is, you know, certainly if you're, if you're of a certain age, you maybe have uh, an elderly relative um, or, you, or you know someone who has gone through this kind of experience. So... I think it's like extremely relatable um, and, and much of that does come through Hopkins performance, but I think the writing also, mm. um, but yeah, I mean, what, what Hopkins does is just, it, you know, I think especially at his kind of vintage to, to kind of find this performance um, or, or to kind of channel this, what must be a quite, quite kind of, you know, raw. It's, it's, it's something that I think for him, you know, as a guy who is coming towards the end of his career, let's be honest, I mean, hopefully he's got many years left in him, but I think this, to, to actually kind of go there with this performance and, and you know, I won't kind of give any, anything away with regards to the ending, but, you know, if you if you see maybe the trailer or any of the publicity materials um, for this film, it, it doesn't really, I think, convey the extent to which Hopkins does go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just a, a really... I think really beautiful, really brave performance. Um, so yeah, I think I think he deserves every award going for this. It really makes me think about. There's one poster in particular where it's Anthony Hopkins with a little glint in his eye, a bit of mischief, with Olivia Colman with a hand on his shoulder, and it really could be, as you say, Adam Grey Pound. Charles, I'm not sure if we have Grey Pound films in the states. No, I actually I understand exactly what you mean. The 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 Grey Dollar, yeah, same concept. But how, how would you describe this film and what it does? Because uh, Florian Zeller adapting this from a stage play to the big screen. Uh, It's very much a single location thing in this flat, very much from his psychological point of view, but what does he do with that? That, That's where I was really uh, surprised and impressed um, because I I was sort of, I guess, dreading a still Alice uh, type experience in which we're really made to painstakingly watch the, the cognizance leave the eyes of this person, which is obviously very difficult thing to watch in a movie exponentially more so in real life but it's very clever is that this is really the only depiction of alzheimer's 
senility that I've seen uh, that really comes from within that psychological vantage point. Uh, there are a lot of tricks with staging and with the elapsing of time that put us in the place of Anthony Hopkins and disorient us in the same way that he's disoriented. And so I think doing that allows them to sort of forestall the really uh, pulverizingly sad parts until uh, the end, which, which you had mentioned obliquely. But during most of it, it is not so much uh, of the misery which is felt by the people caring for him, but what we feel is, is uh, his experience, which is frustration mostly and uh, confusion and, and irritation, uh, which I think is both true to life and a really great way to get around that sort of sedate feeling that can often come with one of these, you know, family movies. Mm. It's really interesting how recently dementia or, or old age themes like that has become a fertile ground for filmmakers. Um, Relic, of course, also came out last year and that took a much more horror movie, haunted house almost approach to the to the genre, to the to the idea, to the experience. Whereas this um, very much is using the uncanny space and the sense of dislocation within a space that you're meant to feel at home in um, to get us to the root of the psychology. Adam, w- would you draw any other comparisons with the father with other films that people may have seen yeah i think the thing that immediately came to mind for me was um michael haneke's amour which i actually saw in in can um when whenever that was i think maybe 2012, 2012 or something yeah, so yeah, yeah. going back a few years but that was um that was one of those films that i think you know struck a chord certainly with everyone who attended the festival and everyone I spoke to at the time. And, you know, I don't think there was like a dry eye in the house for that screening. And it was a film that I think, you know, people kind of respected and also said, I'll quite happily never watch that film again. <laughs> and I think maybe the father falls in that, in that same camp. Um, I think, you know, I, I do think on a technical level, I think Charles just touched on this, but on a technical level, I think this does something quite similar to a more in some ways in that you've got this, single very contained setting um and there's scenes that do kind of blur the line a little bit between not so much reality and fantasy but like the perspective of the person that is that is kind of suffering i mean in the case of a more it's more like grief and, and loss as opposed to just like alzheimer's but um you know there'll be scenes in the father where anthony hopkins is is having a conversation with someone the camera kind of tracks through the flat um and they leave and then he carries on you know goes to the kitchen and suddenly there's a knock at the door and you realize that like within that space even though there's not been a cut maybe as many as like several days or even longer have have passed have elapsed um and i think that's that's something which you know is very true of the disease from everything i understand about it and my my gran actually has um dementia and it's not not quite as far gone as anthony hopkins character in this but um, one of the things that's really striking when you spend any time with her is like that sense of how much she's, you know, kind of living in her own world, I think it would be the way to put it. Um, you know, the idea of like the way it not only affects your short-term memory, but your perception of the rest of the world around you, basically, and the way that time kind of um, goes on. I think, you know, so many of us live our lives by by the clock, right? We're always kind of you know, keeping, keeping an eye on the time and, and everything kind of revolves around this cycle. But I think when that's broken and when you, when you kind of lose your kind of grounding in that, then it, it, yeah, it becomes really difficult. And I think another thing this film does really well actually shows how difficult it is for the people around the person. So mm. although you've got these really sympathetic, really, you know, um, 
you know, really empathetic characters like Olivia um, Coleman and Olivia Williams as well in this, who's, who I think is really good. Um, you, you, you also get characters who are maybe less sympathetic towards um, Hopkins' character and you get this anger and this frustration and this, and this cruelty as well um, coming out, which, um, yeah, it's really difficult. But again, I think quite a brave move on the part of the film and, and Florian Zeller to show that as well. Yeah, a, a much sharper and more troubling film, perhaps than you may expect. It's, this this was a funny old year for awards discourse, anyway. But since this was released so is coming out in the UK so late compared to some of the other maybe fan favourites that were in contention, it felt like almost a safer option as a winner. You know, of course Anthony Hopkins will take Best Actor, but I think there's there's something of real quality here and something that we shouldn't really spoil as much as you know as, as we you know we should try not to spoil mm. because it's really is a, an experience like a play which you should just go and give it the time sit through almost a perfect cinema movie in that sense after you know browsing through our phone watching films on tv for the last year uh, charles before we put any scores on anything else you can sort of tease about the father without giving too much away yeah, I think um, that if you are someone who watches film with a mind towards nuts and bolts acting, uh, you will find that his performance is so rich in detail and specificity. Um, and I guess part, part of that has influenced my grandfather passed away a few years ago uh, by the same thing. And a lot of his little fixations, uh, he was always checking his pocket for his change. He always had change in his breast pocket and he was always making sure that that was still there, much in the same way that Anthony Hopkins often, um, like you were saying, he kind of grounds himself by finding his watch. Uh, in the same way he gets hung up on certain phrases, he always, he has his little joke about uh, how you can't move to France. They don't even speak English there, mm. uh, which is fun. I found out, you know, this is a French play and I wonder in the original, is it that a Parisian is moving to London and you can't move to London, they don't even <laughs> speak French there. I just mean to say that this is a performance really rich and lived in detail, both in, in the writing and in the way that Anthony Hopkins approaches it. Um, I was hugely impressed, and I think it's a risky performance in many ways, which is not something that we always associate with someone whose greatness is as firmly understood as Anthony Hopkins, but he's still, you know, uh, it's a lively, spontaneous performance uh, from mm. someone who's, you know, uh, really getting on in years, which just makes it all the more impressive. Yeah. Much to recommend, I think, about the father, and yeah, that's a really fascinating aspect. I think it's it, it, it had already been adapted into a French film, which looks much more French, sort of knockabout comedy with a quirky dad. If you go and look <laughs> up that that, that version, um, but let's put some scores on the father, Adam. I'll come to you first. So we go in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. I think in anticipation. I don't really know too much about it going in. I hadn't um, seen the play or seen the French film, which you just mentioned. So I'd, I'd maybe say a three. Um, and I would say maybe partly that's based on the fact that Anthony Hopkins, um, you know, gladly having proven me wrong now, but I, I'd kind of thought maybe his best days were behind him as well. Um, so yeah, enjoyment, I'd say four, um, mostly based on his performance. But I think as, as we've said, the writing is just so rich and, and there's so much to it. Um I think in retrospect, it's really tricky with this because it's a film I've thought about a lot, but a film I have no plans to revisit anytime soon. So um, I'd maybe go four again for that. And Charles? I have to say, I think I'm going to reiterate a lot of what you said there. I approached this uh, not not really with anticipation so much as dread. I thought this was going to be a really difficult watch. And so I would say probably two or even three. Just, uh, you know, I had heard that the reviews were positive, but this really did not seem like it would be 
uh, to my liking, but watching it, yeah, I was really surprised by how it moves along. Rather short film that really that really works right along. And so yeah, I would say four as well for for enjoyment. Uh, in retrospect, I feel pretty secure about saying five. This is something mm-hmm. that I have been dwelling on a lot. Not only uh, Anthony Hopkins' performance, I think we see a lot of fine films that are really built from the performance outward, but I think formally creatively the way it's conceived and executed i think it's really just a strong piece of work especially from someone who's really just dipping his toe into the world of film now this is his first feature so i would i would i would give him the five on this one i'd say he's earned it mm-hmm. so yeah I'd, I'd agree in retrospect this was a five for me i i in terms of in, in anticipation there's a great pedigree behind this even though as you say florence Zeller is you know hasn't worked in film before is translating a play from a foreign language he's working with christopher hampton who you go back through his career as a dramatist and the screenwriter adapter of stage plays from dangerous liaisons onwards is has some pedigree behind him and what a cast but if, if there was any trepidation that was sort of blown out almost immediately um a really sharp film that does linger in the mind so i think for me it's four four five i'm not very confident with that so we're going to leave behind the father and go and shack up with our sugar daddy next for Shiver Baby. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. College student Danielle is faced with a series of awkward encounters at a day long shiver, a Jewish gathering during a time of mourning. Amongst overbearing relatives, she is rattled by the appearance of an ex girlfriend and her secret sugar daddy, who unexpectedly arrives with his wife and baby. So, Charles, can you introduce us to the world of Shiver Baby here? That's quite an enclosed, <laughs> quite low budget, but it's been getting quite a bit of hype. Yeah, this is a this is a film that I think won a lot of people over for the accuracy with which it portrays an incredibly um, uh, a lifelike milieu. This is a, a young millennial Jewish woman, which is, I think, uh, in my coverage of the film for its US release a little while ago, I talked about how a lot of the characteristics that we once associated with uh, specifically being Jewish have sort of started to apply to millennials at large. All of these mm-hmm. neuroses, anxieties about your job, fraught relationships with your parents, I think these have become more common. But we see all of those things really cranked to 11 when Danielle is made to attend uh, a shiva, which is a funeral ritual. After a, a Jew dies, you sit with their family and loved ones and you do a lot of noshing, that is to say, eating. 
and you do a lot of uh, <laughs> fetching, which is to say complaining, all these fun Yiddish terms that we're going to pick up today. Um, and so, yeah, she's there. And what is really agonizing about this is that for Danielle, who I believe is 20 in the film, uh, she is one of a grand total of two young people at this party. Uh, she is subjected to really a battery of invasive, insulting, passive aggressive questioning from all of these old women and, and her mother's friends. Uh, and the only person that she really has there as a lifeline is her ex, which makes matters even more complicated, uh, whose name is Maya, that they went to prom together and shared a formative sexual experience, but they are currently somewhat on the outs, sort of uh, miscommunications via social media, have a slightly estranged them from one another, but there's definitely still something there. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of plates spinning in the air, uh, and it is all the more impressive for the way that it fits right into her uh, portrait of of this lifestyle, I guess you could call it, because it's not even about Judaism, but a very specific strain of, of really niggling, uh, uh, insecure, insecurity breeding uh, Jewish parenting and, and Jewish family units. Hmm. You know, as you say, Charles, it's, it is actually fascinating how many of the qualities we associate with the millennial experience can, can almost be borrowed over from elements of sort of Jewish observational humor and family humor. I think a lot of the comedy of the past century, you know, has been informed by Jews and the Jewish sensibility. And so that's sort of been absorbed at large. Mm. But then, so if, if it is sort of part of this wave of millennial angst, we see that in independent films, we're seeing it on TV as well, BBC series like, you know, Starstruck, certain extent fleabag things like that what is this doing differently to make it stand out from the crowd if anything um so i guess it's the way that it's applied like it's uh we meet danielle early on and she seems uh we, we meet her in a rather compromising position with her sugar daddy she has a lovely interaction where they get to it uh he he writes her a little or i think he i don't know if it's catch or check but he pays her she goes on a merry way and then to her horror she encounters him at uh the shiva and so i think it is not just uh sort of pinpointing this personality and articulating it this way but then uh inserting it into this pressure cooker environment where the anxiety she already has is just like ratcheted up constantly little by little all of these embarrassing compromising things keep happening and shattering really the one sort of a solace she had, which was her relationship with the guy, which has now uh, begun to come crashing down. So Adam, what's your take on Shiva Baby? So this has kind of been positioned as a breakout for both the writer-director, Emma Seligman, but also the lead, Rachel Sennett, who sort of had a bit of a bit of social media fame based on her videos posting on social media. So what, what's your take on Shiva Baby? Yeah, I must say, uh, it. Rachel Sennett was not on my radar at all. I, mm. I understand she is kind of quite a big persona on, on Twitter, especially, but um, I think she's really good in this, actually. Um, you know, she gets that kind of awkwardness, anxiety. I love the fact her character is kind of railing against her her situation, her parents, but also very much aware that she is kind of like, you know, she hasn't really severed that cord yet. So she kind of does, you know, she does kind of, have to kind of keep these plates spinning and it's it's very much like a millennial almost like a comedy of manners i'd describe it a little bit although you know the manners are are, are very much being kind of um you know she she's she's i guess rachel Sett's character is trying to her best to kind of break them down but also yeah very much reliant on these um yeah just the whole 
as you said, Charles, the kind of dynamic in this Jewish family, and she's very aware of like where the power is, I guess, and where the, where the power balance is. Mm. Um, but yeah, she's she's really good in this. I think just very funny, very witty, um, very dry. There's very like sardonic kind of uh, almost black streak of humor through this. Um, and I think uh, in terms of Emma Seligman's um, role in this, I think as well as the writing being really sharp and and well observed, I think just direct directorially it's really interesting i think formally she she goes to some interesting places with it and there's there's a kind of sequence at the end which is quite kind of fever dreamish and everything gets kind of cranked up and mm. um there's there's a there's a bit with a, a a baby which actually oddly enough kind of re- reminded me of darren aronofsky's mother um gets very intense mm. very quickly and uh, ev- everything feels like it's kind of closing in on her and suddenly these kind of fairly abstract um you know, bodies in the room at this, at this, um, shiver. Um, it feels like they're kind of like walling her in and she's kind of shouldering her way through the crowd a little bit. And yeah, I think, I think it's really, really clever from a, from a kind of technical point of view in terms of using that space and and the way the actors are blocked and the way that they kind of all, um, lock together and interact. Yeah. It's quite a sort of almost pot boiling sort of thing where, the constant assault of questions and assumptions and about your life and your direction and all your family neuroses being projected onto you. It makes me think of something that Hannah, Hannah Strong of this parish mentioned in relation to Uncut Gems, where some people see that as incredibly stressful, but to some people, um, that's just life. (laughs) Charles, did you see this as an existential horror movie or just very painfully well observed? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, it is It is many things to many people. Uh, the aspect that I feel like we haven't really touched on yet, which I think goes hand in hand with the aspect of this as as horror, as tension, but uh, it is, I, I found it hysterically funny. A lot of just wonderful one-liners delivered uh, really uh, with, with great commitment, with great aplomb by Rachel Sennett. I think uh, it's one of the better and more uh, merciless depictions of approaching the end of college without anything really uh, planned. I think uh, she's getting needled about her job prospects and she says, and this is perfect, she says, it's not a career, it's a lens, uh, <laughs> which is about uh, the way she's studying. Um, my point being that I think uh, the agony and comedy of this uh, are two sides of the exact same coin. I think when you watch someone's parents uh, cut down their self-esteem which almost always happens in a way that is funny. I think we see this happen in a way that is well-intended and thus comedic uh, more than just outright abusive. I see that much more frequently. And so when we see this, it is funny to us, obviously, because it's not happening to us, but it is also painful because we can very easily imagine it happening to us or remember a time when it did happen to us. Uh, And so I definitely get uh, the idea of this as a sort of overwhelming sensory experience in the way of Uncut Gems, which comes down to a lot of the sound design, uh, which is incredibly layered, uh, really cluttered, really, really, um, and uh, chaotic. Uh, The the soundtrack has all these splintering, cracking string noises that feel like you're pulling a splinter out of your ear. Uh, And so... I think, yeah, it is definitely a sort of intense experience in that way, but also uh, very funny, very watchable. And I, I think like 81 minutes at a also very fleet film, which I respect, especially from um, mm-hmm. someone adapting. It was a short film. She had created a short film with Rachel Sennett around this. Uh, and I often find that when a director adapts their own short film, you can always pick out what selection of the movie 
the short was and, and then how mm. it's built around. I think that's very naturally integrated in this case that you can't really figure out what was your idea and then you had a bunch of tertiary ideas around it. It really feels like one cohesive film. Yeah, you're right to point out the length. I think this is one of those rare episodes of Truth and Movies where all three films are quite short. I think you watch all three films we're talking about this week in the space that you'd take to watch the Snyder Cut. So <laughs> which one I'd, just, I'd recommend doing. But let's put some scores on this film, on Shiver Baby. Um, Charles, I'll come to you first. I think uh, in, in many respects of demographic, I am perhaps the ideal audience for this film. And so once I really knew uh, what it was about and who was involved, you know, also uh, Rachel Sonat, if she's big anywhere, it's here in Brooklyn. This is where she does her shows and where she has sort of created her following. So I was curious about all of this. I'll say four. Uh, there was a lot of talent attached that had really piqued my interest. And then I would say in terms of enjoyment, that's that's a solid five for me. This is one of my favorite films of the year. I thought it was so quotable, uh, so well-observed, so funny, so uh, disturbing and unsettling. And then ultimately, by the end, very sweet. The, the way it ends, which is on a sort of subtle note, really leaves you on a very uh, kind of touching note, which I hadn't expected. So that's definitely a five. And in retrospect, I feel secure uh, that it was a five. This came out in the States now a few months ago, so I've had the benefit of some real-life hindsight, and uh, I'm still as attached to it as I was upon my first view. Adam, what are your scores for Shiver Baby? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm wavering a little bit. I think Charles has kind of com- quite compelled compelled me with his scores there. But um, uh, as I say, they neither the director or star really were on my radar before, so I'd go three for anticipation. I think a solid four for enjoyment. Um, yeah, just just really really like the kind of cut of, cut of this film's jib. Um, I would say I'm, I'm kind of wavering between a three and a four in retrospect. I think the the cynic in me wanted. Um, a less cozy ending although I do I do see why you know that, that you know it, I think the way it ends is actually very fitting and very um, very sweet as Charles said but yeah I'd, I'd, I'd maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of sit on the fence there and say like a three and a half in retrospect but I definitely would want to I, I would anticipate um, their, their next work very very highly absolutely I, I think I'd play, place this in a similar estimation to um Troy Schultz's Krisha, a sort of first um, feature, very enclosed, very close to home, really powerful in its own way, but you just want to see what they're doing next. Um, so I, it, might, it might go up on a second viewing. I will say I watched this after taking my first jab of the vaccination, so it was feeling a little bit weird. Um, so I'll say three, 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 but there's certainly plenty of talent here, not least a nice cameo from the always welcome Fred Melamed. It is a character actor bonanza. There are a lot of really, really great bit players in there. Jackie Hoffman, who is a legend in New York, is one of the old women who's always giving her a hard time. It's a, a lot of fun people to spot. It sounds like, uh, Charles, we should do rewatch it with you giving us a commentary. Jew, Jews commentary. Jewish one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That's Shiver Baby, which is, has one-off screenings up and down the country this week, but is on movie this weekend as well to watch. So up next, we have Film Club going all the way back to 1996 for the Coen Brothers Fargo. If you haven't seen Fargo before, here's a nice blurb. A reality-based crime drama set in Minnesota in 1987, Jerry Lundegaard is a car salesman in Minneapolis who's gotten himself into debt and is so desperate for money that he hires two thugs, Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, 
to kidnap his own wife. Jerry will collect the ransom for her, from her wealthy father, paying the thugs a small portion and keeping the rest to satisfy his debts. The scheme collapses when the thugs shoot a state trooper. So this is, you know, at the time it was seen as one of the Coen brothers' great breakouts, but now it's almost, you know, it's 25 years ago, it's early Coen's. Um, Adam, where does Fargo land for you? What's your take on it, particularly rewatching it? Yeah, actually, this was this is a very well timed rewatch because I was I was kind of left with a gaping void um, with Mayor of Easttown finishing, mm. so this was kind of yeah perfect spot for for Monday night um, following that that show ending. And actually, I've, I've been reading a lot about Mayor of Easttown and people kind of talking about this this kind of seemingly new subgenre of like women crime dramas and kind of tracing it back to things like Gone Girl. But I actually think. Fargo is a really interesting precursor to, to something like Mayor of Easttown. Um, it's got humor, obviously, but I think it is it's a darker um, kind of affair all round. And I think Fargo's a little bit softer, although it has these moments of it's punctuated by some quite intense violence. Um, but it, it, it's just a really comforting film in a weird way. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, really. And, you know, I have that thing with the Coen brothers where if you ask me to name my favorite of their films, it's probably the last one I watched. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it is just so airtight. I think this film, um, you know, as, as we've said, it's, it's very economic with its runtime. Um, I love the fact, and I always kind of forget this until I rewatch it, but I love the fact that you're not introduced to the main character until about 20 minutes in or something, which actually, I mean, it's a fairly unconventional, unusual thing to have that in in a film of this nature um and i think the way i mean obviously francis mcdormand's performance elevates this so much but the the way that you're introduced to the character and and her story being kind of bookended by these very sweet quite intimate moments with her and her husband norm in bed just kind of you know in in their own very very private little space um it's just so beautiful and and yeah, I, I love I love the fact that they do that because it's kind of I mean it does drive the plot forward a little bit, but it's just really, really kind of insignificant, trivial detail. I suppose it's 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 something which a lot of directors would not even think to add, basically. But it really, really rounds out the character and, and kind of um, you know just just gives you so much in terms of her life and her backstory, um, mm-hmm. which you'd otherwise maybe not get um from a film like this so yeah i think her performance especially is what is what makes this so good and it's actually it's a we should say it's a really different performance to maybe what we're more used to nowadays with things like three billboards and nomadland um but yeah she is superb in this it is definitely a film to watch now thinking about all of the various paths the people behind and in front of the camera have been on you know, Frances McDormand, you know, it's relevant now because of Nomadland, but it feels like she's settled into more of a screen persona, which is Frances McDormand doing these roles. Whereas when she's Marge Gunderson, she's very much buried into that performance and it has those little wonderful quirks in the screenplay and the performance, the accents and all that. We should nod to Claire Vaughan on Twitter who tweeted saying, Marge's husband is one of the best examples of non-toxic masculinity in the movies. <laughs> And I think about their lovely relationship all the time. Absolutely true. Uh, I love that it ends on them as well. Um, Charles, where does Fargo land for you in the Coen Brothers filmography? The phrase non-toxic masculinity has always sounded a bit like a shampoo brand 
to me. <laughs> that's not that's not my take on the film. That's just the no last more thing, tears. the last thought I had. Um, I think that when I was first uh, getting acquainted with cinephilia, Fargo was really the consensus pick for greatest Coen Brothers of all time. Um, and I think having seen the rest of their films now, it's sort of clear why that is. It's definitely, I think, the most uh, lovable and approachable uh, Coen Brothers movie. I think despite not being an outright comedy, it is one of their funniest. And I think it is built around a very legible and comprehensible idea, uh, which is like, what if it was a film noir set in a place that was blanketed entirely in white? That's a, that's really how I look at it, where you see films like Barton Fink or Man Who Wasn't There, uh, which I think are really for the, the real heads, as they say, which are have a sort of greater opacity and don't really invite you in as much as Fargo does, which, which it really, really does. Um, I find it to be uh, not only like so fiendishly clever and well-conceived, I think it is just a really... Um, enjoyable film. It's it's full of uh, lines that make me laugh. Steve Buscemi's great performance. Uh, this would be, I would say, top three for me up there mm. with Oh Brother and um, Serious Man. Those are my that's my top three right there. I mean, Serious Man would be a great double bill with Shiver Baby. I think. Yes, absolutely. Fred Mellon, a double feature, baby. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, that's really fascinating, Adam. This is something we talk about quite a lot in these film clubs. There's that moment in the mid-90s where if you were an American filmmaker worth your salt, you sort of attracted some stylistic elements that you could almost call post-Tarantino. We talked about Lost Highway being that for David Lynch. I think we mentioned Hard Eight being that for PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is one where I don't think the Coens ever have this approach to violence, certainly not guns blazing violence, ever again you maybe you could see some of that there's also it's used for comic effects in burn after reading much more as a slapstick way maybe true grit you can say but this this is feels very typically mid-90s to me in that sort of sense of an era of sideways look at american crime as a genre um but it's then fascinating to see that everything is there that we love about the coens the character details the specificity the brilliant character names all the characters have just wonderful names you, Charles, you mentioned the, the idea that it's a noir set in a landscape coated in white. And this is Roger Deakins in the many years where he should have won Oscars before he went off and made much flashier films on bigger canvases and then won Oscars. I, I think that this is just ingenious work. The way I always think of this film is like it's a photo negative of a film noir. Uh, mm. The first scene I think that we really like that captures everything is um, is Jerry Lundegaard who is trudging through this unforgiving, humiliating snow so that he can scrape the ice off his windshield like the puny loser that he is. And we get this incredible overhead shot of him going through a parking lot where the only things that aren't coated in snow are, I think, these garden boxes that they have with trees in. And it creates the image of him walking across a little hand-sewn needlepoint or a quilt, which is, I mean, mean, that's so clever. And the way it's inserted is is so unobtrusive. And I just, I look back at that and I was like, wow, what a great idea he had and and inserted so smoothly into the film. Um, I I think he's great. And I think uh, what you had said about the 90s-ness, the post-Tarantino-ness, uh, is, is correct. I think that there's definitely an ironic detachment to the film, uh, which is really identified with the time that a lot of people mistook as condescension. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the constant charge against the Coens is that they always think they're smarter and, and better than their characters, which is, I think, if you're any real devotee of the Coens, you can tell that that is not the case, because as much uh, humor as there is, because these are guys from the Midwest and they understand the little goofy parts of being from the Midwest. There are also these moments of intense earnestness that uh, 
we see uh, Marge and her husband in bed, and you can see that he does definitely believe in this. And so I think uh, visually, uh, ethically, it all it all squares up. We talked about the violence, but I think the humor, I'm not sure they've done physical comedy or, or visual humor better mm. than in here. I mean, you know, it, it, I will never not laugh at the image of um, Steve Buscemi kind of trudging through the snow, having just kind of buried this um, this suitcase, which, you, you know, inevitably he's never going to find again. And, you know, there's a wonderful moment where he just kind of falls through what must be about four feet of snow and, and has to kind of pull himself out. And, you know, that was just one take that they that t- tickled them in the editing room and they decided to keep it. But I think, yeah, there's there's so much wonderful, very subtle visual um, humour going on in this. Yeah. And that the the idea of the buried suitcase of money in the snow is in that film, Kumiko, the Treasure Hunter, sort of indie film. I saw it at Berlin a few years ago. It did finally come out. And it's about this Japanese lady who watches Fargo and takes it at face value when they say this is based on a real thing that happened in the 80s in Minnesota. And she thinks there's actually a hidden case of money out there and goes on a, um, I mean, it's quite a dark film character study of, of uh, maybe a, quarter life crisis directionless malaise but um so funny that the coen brothers just added that at top just as a gag (laughs) again that's some of that ironic detachment right there charles (laughs) those kind of disclaimers based on a true true story is like one of my greatest bugbears in in film i think it's like the most redundant thing ever but this this fargo is the one film where i can make an exception to that I think it's it's brilliant. It's a, it's a really funny little joke joke to open the film and, and just perfectly sets the tone for what you're about to watch, I think. And, I, and there, there are a million great lines as well. I always think the, the, the one less quoted, but my favorite is the sweaty sales pitch that uh, Jerry Lundegaard gives to the people he's trying to build. He's, you're going to want that true coat. You never get the true coat. You never get the true coat. <laughs> it, it really is one of those films that um, every time I go back, it's all these moments. It's so... so just jam-packed with moments once you remember once you've forgotten it's uh, really worth checking out so i'm not a tv guy but when i mentioned that i was re-watching fargo everyone comes back and says oh you mean the tv series series four has just started it's amazing should people go from the film fargo and watch the tv show i uh i don't want to cause too much controversy here but i am ardently opposed to fargo the tv show which i consider a misunderstanding and perversion of everything the film brothers stand for uh, I think that you see certain elements of their style, their fondness of symbolism, of uh, chance and coincidence, used in these really bludgeoning, obvious ways that the Coen brothers would never permit. I, I find this to be a, a cheap knockoff of the genuine article. Yeah, I think I watched the first season, which had Martin Freeman, and is essentially like a retread of the film, but um, lost interest after that. I was basically watching it thinking I could just be watching Fargo and it's 97 minutes or, or whatever it is, and, you know. Yes, I, I'm, I'm of the same opinion when it's a, a TV show that goes on for a long many seasons or watch a 97-minute film. I will choose that every time. But listeners, your mileage may vary. You, let us know if the TV series of Fargo is worth watching and let us know what you think of any of the films we've discussed on the episode today at the usual channels. That's at LWLies on Twitter or via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. So next week we have a prepositional double bill. We have Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, followed by Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights and in Film Club. Because Monster Hunter is out in cinemas, we're going to give Paul W.S. Anderson his due. We're going to be talking about, well, let's say, 
David Jenkins' highlight of the Resident Evil franchise, Resident Evil Retribution. Let us know what you think of any of those films, if you've seen them already at the usual channels, and subscribe wherever you pod. If your podcast player of choice also lets you leave a review, we'd love if you left one for us too. Adam, Charles, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market